Dear Father in heaven, I just want to thank you for your goodness to me. And Lord, you know that I'm not perfect. You know I have many faults. But your continuous love and guidance has drawn my heart. And I pray that it would continue to draw and that with the message I speak tonight, it would draw others as well. In your name we ask. Amen. There is a story that I like to do when I start anything that I present. I've forgotten a few times, but it's about a, a, one of the older kind of movies of Martin Luther where, um, you know, he goes through this whole thing. He's struggling to find the Lord. I can't find him. I can't find him. He's beating himself. And basically his, his, uh, his mentor comes to him and he's like, you know, you can't, you can't find Christ and make yourself acceptable by beating your soul, you know. And so obviously if anyone's read the history of Martin Luther, it's a very dark and despairing beginning. And so his, in, in the movie one version, okay, um, his, his higher up says, I'm going to send you to Wittenberg so that you can study the word of God and you can teach it because you need the word of God. Little did he know that it was going to start the Reformation. And in the movie, the, the Martin Luther says, Father, I don't know the word of God. I'm, I'm so inexperienced. I'm so faulty. How can I teach the word of God if I don't know it? And, he's, and the guy looks at him and he says, we preach best what we need to learn most. And in, in many ways, I feel like that tonight where I haven't arrived. But, but the idea is that I see the end goal. I see the, the point. And, and by God's grace, that comes out tonight. So if you would start with me, turn to Matthew chapter 6. This is a Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to read through starting in verse 19. And it says, Lay up not for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break in, break through nor steal. Christ is addressing here a situation that he sees in the population that he's speaking to where their confidence and their hope for this life is in their ability to lay up treasures on earth, to have security. And he's saying, look, you need a change of perspective because that's a shifting sand situation. You need to lay up your treasure in heaven. And he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then he says, the light of the body is the eye. If there then the, sorry, this is old English. I'll get through this. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thy eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? So remember, we're starting off here. Where's people's confidence? in treasures on earth, and Christ wants to move them to put their confidence in treasures in heaven, right? So this is, this is, this is the setup. And then we get this thing of evil, right? And, and it's interesting that if we take evil all the way back to the original situation in the Garden of Eden, right? We've heard this story a thousand times, right? So Eve comes to the tree, and she's told not to eat of it because the knowledge of evil is there. And, but the, the, the serpent makes these lies. She falls. She's deceived. She eats of the fruit. Their eyes are opened, Adam and Eve. And obviously the rest is a downflow history of disaster, of which we are the wonderful recipients of today. Um, and so what's going on there? What's going on in that dynamic? And I just want to distill it for you. Evil is the principle the, the, the knowledge of evil is the principle that God cannot be trusted. 
okay? So if you take the perspective in life, the eye of evil, right, and you believe that God can't be trusted, then what great darkness is there? Because if God can't be trusted, he's your creator, he's your sustainer, then who becomes your sustainer? Who becomes your foundation on which you plant your feet? It's me. It's me. It's all on me. And Christ is saying, look, if your eye is evil, if you've taken into yourself this principle that, um, that I'm not trustworthy, that you can't depend on me, that you can't put your weight on me, that puts all the weight on you, and it's a great darkness. And if any of you have ever been in a situation, and I'm so blessed that Uncle John gave this and talked about their testimony. You know, the idea is that he's in this dark, anxious situation with their strawberries. And he can either say, the Lord can't be trusted, right? Or he can say, I'm going to take a notebook and I'm going to walk up into the hills because I know my God has answers, right? It's that shift. This is this perspective. So is your eye evil? Do you not trust God? Well, great. Don't trust God. But then you take upon yourself the entire weight. No man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Think about this in a situation. Let's say that you're in a relationship with someone, okay? Practical example, most of you probably are or have been or will be, so this is very practical. Um, and let's say that there's, there's something holding you. There's some distrust that you have in that individual, like maybe they're doing something behind your back or what. What's, what's the potential, what's the full extent that you can actually trust that individual? Very small. If anything, it's going to go the opposite direction, especially if you're your fears are justified. And God's saying, look, you can't be, you can't be back and forth with me on this. You either got to trust me or you don't. There's no halfway here. Therefore, if we take, put our treasure in heaven, if we don't have the evil eye, taking the principle upon ourselves that it's God can't be trusted and we take on that weight ourselves, if we don't, if we reject that, Christ is saying, therefore, I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on, is not the life more than raiment and the body, sorry, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. Behold the fowls of the air. And now he's giving examples. But that word, that word thought, obviously in the, in the King James Version, it's thought. But a more correct translation is a tearing to pieces feeling that's connected with anxiety. Okay? So it's really saying don't take anxiety or don't be anxious about these things. It's not saying don't think about preparing and trying to earn a living. Don't think about this. Don't think about that. Don't take the weight of that responsibility, that anxiety that weighs you down. That's something that I want to take for you. That's something that you don't have to weigh upon yourselves. And if you're willing, I'll take it for you, right? So behold the fowls of the air, verse 26. They sow not Obviously, this is an agricultural reference. Obviously, Christ is talking to a lot of people that are involved in agriculture because he had to back then. It was like probably 80% of the population at least. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, taking thought, anxiety, this fear, this... Well, I'll get to that later. Which of you taking thought can add one cubic to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field. He's using nature, right, as an analogy. Consider the lilies of the field. Uh, That was a little... Okay, I'll get it back here. 
Why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God doth close the grass of the field, which today is tomorrow, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, using that example, through nature of trust building, right? Therefore, take no and this is, I'm going to use this, trans, this, this version. Therefore, take no, or be not distracted and torn in pieces, as it were, with anxious and unbelieving thoughts, saying, what shall we eat? How shall we provide for, for uh, how, will, shall we be, uh, how shall we be provided for during the remainder of our lives? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Okay? It's interesting that um, Christ is saying, look, where is your trust? Where is your hope? Look at the nature. It's testifying that you can trust in me, that you can rest in me, and I can take this anxiety from you. And I think all of us, to a certain extent, I mean, I saw Uncle John crying on the stage this morning. He's like, my dreams and my hopes with the strawberries, all of our dreams and hopes, like, it's not just the plant. It, what's the plant represents, right? It's your dreams, your hopes of the future, Whatever that is for you, you know. You know what that feels like, right? When, when it's like, it just, it just, just got that f- much farther away. Uh, a few, uh, well, a year and a half ago, my dad was, was laid off from his job, and he decided to say, hey, let's make the farm a go. And now it's like, oh, Lord, I, it's not just about providing for me and making a job for my sister, but now that safety net is no longer there. And I woke up for about three weeks night after night, with pain in my chest, anxiety attacks, because it's like, Lord, what's going on here? And basically, he's like, Alan, either you can bear this anxiety, and it's going to crush you, or you can give it to me, and Alan, I want to take it from you. You don't have to bear this burden. And it was just like, Lord, you know what I want. I know this is going to kill me if I keep going on like this, Lord, whatever happens, let your will be done. Because like, we, no one wants to look like a fool. No one wants to look crazy or out of their mind. But I mean, agriculture is a crazy thing. And I'm not saying that agriculture is your thing. I'm sure the Lord has ways, and you're in positions just like this. I was talking with a friend yesterday. He, uh, he's a construction person. And he's like, brother, I know exactly what you mean. I have all these problems and these problems and these problems. And it's just like, it's, it's a human problem. It's not just a farmer problem. Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall you eat, or what shall you drink, or with whether withal, don't you love that word? Whether withal, shall ye be clothed, for after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. And then here's the, here's, here's the critical part. And, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought or anxiety for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And I think that's really key because we get this balance here. God's saying, not saying, don't take no thought, like think about things, make your plans, work your plans. 
But you don't have to bear that anxiety. You don't have to bear that crushing, ripping anxiety that comes across us that woke me up for three weeks in a row with pain in my chest. That's something that God's willing to take from us. It's a day-by-day experience. It's like the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? The manna came every day in a double portion on Sabbath. But it was to teach them to say, look, man does not live by but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's a relationship. And we're only promised today. And quite honestly, we can only live in the now. That's the point. And in my opinion, that's, that's what agriculture has the potential of facilitating for us in our experience. But if agriculture is not facilitating that in your experience, it's really not worth much. And I know it's like, ooh, well. But think about this. If we don't build a relationship with God, if our hope for eternal life is not in him, and we're just like growing nice food, and it's a great thing for our families, I hate to say it, but in 150 years, no one's probably going to know most of us if time should last. And what's it all for? I mean, our health message, right? What's our health message for? That we might have minds, that we might be able to connect in a meaningful relationship and entrusting relationship with our Savior. That's the point. It's not to just live 10 years average longer than the normal population. This life is a vapor. It's about relationship. It's about trust. It's about coming in and letting God take the anxiety from your experience and allowing him to transform your life. And think about it this way. Sin And I believe this with all my heart. Sin is the natural byproduct of a break in that relationship. So if we sin, it's not like, oh, I sinned. Oh, I have this problem. The thing is like, where did I break the relationship? Where is God? Where did I lose the track? Let me get back to God. Don't take time. Get back as fast as you can. Because it's about him. It's about him transforming your life. And think of this way. I want to use the story of Abraham. Abraham obviously believe God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So we hear here, it says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Put your treasure and your hopes in heaven. That's where they should be. And his righteousness. How do we seek God's righteousness? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, but then he disbelieved God and said, I better try to do it myself, right? Where's the responsibility? God said, I'm going to do it for you. Abraham waited, 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 and sometimes the Lord has us to wait because in the waiting, we build that trust. But he couldn't wait any longer, and Sarah said, we need a kid. Hagar looks available. Let's do this thing. And Okay, maybe it wasn't quite like that, but um, but that's the idea, okay? And then God says, look, Ishmael's a great kid. I'll bless him, but he's not the promise. I promise to do this for you, and I will fulfill my promise. So Isaac's born, okay? And then Abraham has this strange dream that he's told to sacrifice his son. And we know in Hebrews, when he he had this dream, he said that God would restore him even if he had to restore him from the dead. So Abraham's saying, he's the child of promise. God made a promise. If God tells me to take his life, he will resurrect him. Okay, and so it's, this, is, this is powerful. So follow me closely here. They're walking up the mountain, and we all know this story, or at least most of us. We're, they're walking up the mountain, and, and, and Isaac says to his father, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where is the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say? Profound words. God will provide. Where was his hope? Where was his faith? Where was his confidence? In himself anymore? 
He had crossed over. His trust and his faith was in God. And with that faith and belief, he was able to obey what the Lord told him to do. But it's all about relationship. Relationship, relationship, rest, trust, belief, faith, hope, all of these things. Okay, moving on here. Oh, I will mention this. So the value of agriculture is twofold. One is we understand that there is a power outside of ourselves, obviously the seed. These are things that are outside of our control that we, we, we interact with, but ultimately speaking, they're not under our control. They pro- that provide for our needs, that in the big scheme of things, we have a very small part to play. God made the world. God made the sun. God made the rain. And he tells Adam and Eve, I planted the garden. All I'm asking you is to tend it, right? So, and then point number two, I wrote these down so I could get them right. Through the, through the failures and disappointments, we learn to place our whole dependence upon God. Like Abraham, God will provide. Okay, so... This is my first time to do this, so follow me quickly to Revelation chapter 14, okay? And we're going to make a quick run through the three angels' messages, and we're going to talk about how this applies to agriculture, and hopefully you find this as exciting as I did when I read it. I don't know if this quote is true or not, but I heard it, and so I'm going to say it, but if I'm wrong, just deal with it. I don't know (laughs) Um, I, but it, it pricked my mind in a way that it never had pricked my mind before. And supposedly someone came up to Ellen White at one point and she, he said, this person said, is, is, is the three angels righteousness by faith? And she says, yay in verity. So I'm like, if, if righteousness by faith, this, this, this point of God will provide, Okay. If, it's, if that's true, then I should be able to find this in Revelation in the three angels' messages. This might be completely new to you. Um, I don't want to, uh, you know, rest Scripture unnecessarily. But I think there's a huge point here, and hopefully you can grasp it. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, and we're going we're gonna to hammer through this. And hopefully this is really exciting to you. It was really opening to me. I better do it before I, like, build it up too much, and then you're like, oh, man. But anyways, okay, here we go. Three angels' messages. If, if someone's in here that's not an Adventist, uh, uh, bless you. Uh, I will try to explain as best as we move through it, but, but try, to, try to track with me on the main themes. Don't get bogged down in the little details, the main things that I'm trying to pull out here. Okay, here we go. Ready? Okay. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. Stop. Everlasting gospel. What does gospel mean? What's the word mean? Good news. What is the good news that is eternal? It's not just like, hey, I got a job today and it's going to pay me really good. Ah, that's good news. It's not that type of good news. This is like, it's always good news. 
and what I've come, and I'll just, I'll just say it, is that the good news is that God has taken upon himself the responsibility of the recovery of the human race. And that's eternally good because that's eternally who God has ever been. We lost sight of that in the Garden of Eden. We distrusted our maker, even though he's been eternally good to us. And his thoughts towards us are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give us a future and a hope. We lost sight of that. Humanity lost sight of that. But that didn't change God. He's eternally, God is eternally good news. And the, re, and the response that God wants to that good news is, amen, the Lord will provide. Okay? So that's the everlasting gospel. So we've seen, we saw that in the Sermon on the Mount. We see that in the righteousness by faith that God wants to have the reaction of Abraham was, he wanted, he wanted Abraham's reaction to be, the Lord will provide. When we see the good news of God's character and that he loves us and that he has taken upon himself the restoration of humanity, he wants us to say, amen, the Lord will provide. And that goes more than just eternal salvation. That goes with every day of our life. Manna is a daily experience. It's about the baseline substance of our existence. It's the foundation of, it's the rock on which we build our house. Okay, and I saw, uh, okay, here, and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, fear God, because ultimately he has judgment. It's love and justice combined, but give him glory, but give glory to him. God deserves glory because he's good. When we see someone like Elon Musk shoot a rocket up in the air and take astronauts to the International Space Station, we say, good for him. That's quite an accomplishment. God has done something far more amazing for the human race, and that's why we give him glory. He's not there beating on his chest, say, give me glory because I'm God. We give him glory because he deserves it. Okay? And this is to quote, okay, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Referencing back to the creation story, which Sabbath is a symbol of, and Sabbath is a symbol of resting in the work that God has done for you. Okay? Adam and Eve come on the scene. They don't do any work. It's the last day of the week. God says, okay, it's over. Let's rest. They say, what do we do? He said, exactly. It's not what you did. It's what I have done for you. That's the point of the Sabbath. Okay? That's why it's referenced here. And the good news here is that God's saying, the time of my judgment has come. This is 1844 message. This is where Adventist comes into play. After this time, God says, anytime after 1844... Sin has run its course. I'm ready to bring my people home. I'm ready for the harvest to mature and to bring my people home. And that's why it's good news. The gospel is good news, but a, but a promised not realized is not necessarily good. It has to be actualized. And God's saying to humanity, time is up. I'm ready to bring my people home. Okay? And that's the message of the judgment hour, because anyone that's a farmer knows that judgment time is harvest time. Okay? It's the time that we look at the fruit and say, uh, no good. I can't sell that one. He's a compost pile. We're going to recycle him. And it's like, ah, oh, this, this, this is a good tomato. This is going to a very special customer. Okay, so the idea is that God wants to bring in the harvest, and he's excited about it. Judgment time is good news because it means that we're near the end and that God wants to take his people home. But there's a message here. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
Okay, step back. Babylon. First place in the Bible where we hear Babylon is? Tower of Babel. What's the principle of Babel? If another flood comes, we want to be able to preserve ourselves. Man trying to earn his own salvation. Trying to save himself. Instead of trusting in the Lord and the promise that God said he's not going to destroy the earth by another flood, they say, we better build a tower because God can't be trusted. We better try to save ourselves. Second place where Babylon is mentioned in scripture, or most notably second place, Nebuchadnezzar says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built by my might and my power for my glory and my majesty? Wow, that's a lot of my's. And then he gets struck by the Lord and eats on a vegetarian diet for seven years and and then comes to his senses. But the idea is that Babylon is the focus of self-salvation. Third place in scripture, or at least in prophecy, where Babylon is mentioned, and that's Roman Catholicism. And I don't want to say anything bad about the people, but the principle of Roman Catholicism is a mixture between paganism, which is self-salvation, cloaked in Christianity. And, the, and, th- and this is why when Martin Luther had the Reformation, Mrs. White says, it jostled the triple crown on top of the Pope's head, and, po- and, and the papacy never held as much sway and confidence as before that time. Because the principle is that man first, uh, at that time, started to understand that this is not something I buy. This is not something I work for, but that it's a free gift. And I need to come in and accept it and say, the Lord will provide. And that that interaction, that connection will transform the life. Okay? So the warning is, is Babylon has fallen, has fallen. It's a broken system. It doesn't work. It's a fallen system. Okay? And another, uh, see, found okay, okay. Forn- and all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The thing is, is that this is not just about a papal issue. This is not just about a Protestant issue. This is not just about a Christian issue. This is about a human issue. You look at all the religions of the world, whether you're an atheist and you trust in materialism for eternal life, which Elon Musk is getting very close to. I mean, I don't know if he's getting close or not, but he's started this company called Neuralink, where basically they're going to put these wires in your head and connect to your neurotransmitters, and then you can download your brain onto silica and live forever. That's a very materialistic... I'm, I'm crazy, but it's coming. I mean, these people are working on this stuff. On the other end, it's all about... Like, in, you know, coming into this special fear and, and, and reincarnation and, you know, we're all one with the universe and God. And it's just, Christianity is unique where it says the onus is not on you. It's on God and you need to enter into his rest. Okay? So, the third angel followed. And this gets a little bit gnarly here, but we're going to read through it and then we're going to come back. I trust you, after, we'll get through this and then, then, then I'll be over. Um, and the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receives the mark in his head, oh, sorry, and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Obviously in Adventism, the belief of this is like the Sunday law is the mark of the beast and, you know, it's the image, all this kind of stuff. Back, back away from that just for a little bit. 
I'm not saying that that's not right. But here's the idea is that the mark of the beast has more to do than with the physical keeping of the Sunday law and has more to do and has more to do with the idea of those that trust in their own ability to save themselves will receive the mark of the beast and those that say the Lord will provide will not. It's the difference between Sabbath, resting in the work that the Lord has done for you, and resting in the work that man has done for you. We know that Constantine, little history, back in 311, basically the church had never even seen Sunday worship before that. But remember, Sunday worship comes from sun worship, where man is basically worshiping the creator, sorry, the creation instead of the creator. It's also man's ability to change God's laws. It's not a trusting relationship. And the crazy thing is, is that we keep the, some people say, oh, you keep the Sabbath because it's legalistic. Absolutely not. It's the only commandment of the 10 that is explicitly contains the gospel. And that's why it's been attacked. Because if you don't know, if you're not constantly reminded that God has done a work for you and you were to enter into that rest on a weekly reminder, what happened with the, I mean, what do we expect? There's no, there's no, there's no guardrails there. There's no thing to, to, to balance against, you know, paganism and mixed with Christianity. It's all man's work. It just comes in. There's nothing to hold it back. I'm not saying it's the only thing, but that's the principle. So I want to think on the bigger, the bigger thing here and listen to this. It says here that those that worship the beast in his image have no rest, day or night. When I was stressed about my farm, let's make this practical. I was having panic attacks in the night, and I was stressed during the day. I didn't have rest day or night. I mean, and the Lord says, look, I'm willing to take that from you, but you have to trust me. Right? That's the principle of agriculture to get us into the vein where this can be accomplished in our lives. And if it's not accomplishing that, it doesn't really serve any purpose because this life is a vapor. But God, but listen to this. It says here, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they which keep the commandments of God, including the sixth, sorry, the fourth, which is the principle of resting in God. And when we rest in God, it allows us to keep the commandments of God. Okay? And have faith in or of, of Jesus. The in and of is supplied from what I understand. So we'll, it just really says faith in Jesus. But faith in Jesus. Those that take the confidence off of themselves. This is the last day. This is the patience of the saints. This is what defines the saints. The people that say the Lord will provide and use the law of God as a schoolmaster to bring them back to their relationship with Christ. That's the whole point of the law. The law is there to show us our need of Christ. And when we fail and we fall, we don't try to get up and try to keep the law. We say, where did I lose Christ? That's the point. Okay? And then it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Stop. It doesn't say stop. I'm just adding that. Paul says, I die daily. Keep that in mind as we continue to read here. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow after them. 
It's a blessing to die to your, the mindset that it's up to you to save yourself. And if you die to that and say, the Lord will provide in every aspect of your life, I assure you, the works of the law will be fulfilled in your life. It's a promise. It's a promise. Okay? And the Lord says, blessed, because you rest. And in Hebrews chapter 4, Paul says, let us labor to enter into that rest. Our work is to stay with Christ and keep our eyes on him. And the works of the law will be fulfilled in the life. And then it says here, and I looked, sorry, and I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud set one like unto the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? This is taken from Daniel. This is referencing Daniel, the Son of Man. And Christ, when he said, I'm the Son of Man, that was the most strong, one of the most strong statements he could use to identify himself as the Messiah. And it's being used here. And I look and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one set like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his sand a sharp sickle. Christ is a reaper. Christ is a farmer. He's coming home. And the thing is, is that these three angels' messages, the principle that God, is, God has glory, God is judge, and he's just, but he also has glory because he's taken upon himself the responsibility of the restoration of the human race. That message must go to the entire world, especially at this time, because we live in the time of the end, according to Daniel, in the prophetic period, which is the same calculations that are used to define the time when Christ came the first time. So it's not, it's not heretical to say that these things are wrong. We used it People, it's interesting, certain Christians will say, oh yeah, Christ came because of prophecy. He arrived right on time. The same calculations that they use for that is the exact same calculations that were used by William Miller to calculate, he just got the event wrong, to calculate the start of the time of the end. And Christ is saying, at this time I want to come home, but this message needs to go to the world. The gospel that God is good, but you have to say, the Lord will provide. A warning against self-salvation, which is reminded us by Babylon. Also a warning that those that receive the mark of the beast, that are trusting in themselves for their own salvation, okay? It's not a restful thing, because you're taking upon yourself a burden that only God can bear. Think of Luther when he had this mindset of God. He was beating himself, trying to lacerate his body, trying to beat his body into subjection. That wasn't, it, was, it was a relationship. It wasn't something that he could do. It was only something that he could receive. And the idea of the blessing to those that learn to find that rest. And at this time, God's saying, if this message is received and transforms the life of his people... The harvest is ripened, and he wants to come and take us home. That is the mission of Adagra, to prepare a people through the interaction. Gardening will not perfect you, but if it brings you to a point, like we've heard from all these testimonies, where you say the Lord will provide, it has accomplished its goal for humanity. Keep the focus. I hear a lot. I, I, I thought when we moved out the country, I'm going, we're following the blueprint. We're following the plan. I'm going to be perfect. What it did is it showed me that the problem's right here, right? And it's a very uncomfortable thing, but it's a very needful thing. 
And it says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. The Adventist Agricultural Association is not an agricultural association that is, happens to be run by Adventists. Or, um, uh, I had a neat way to say this, but I've totally gone blank. Let's put it this way. You can go to other conferences that have better technical experience. But the point of this event is to help you see that God wants to be relevant in your life. That he wants to take a burden off of your shoulders. And that in this act, it prepares God people to have a message that's not only compelling to them, but a message that they feel compelled to share. Because when, you, when, when the burden of life is lifted off of your shoulders, it transforms you and it's something that you want to share. That's why I wanted to share Revelation 14 to show you that, look, the big point of the entire scheme of history is God is saying, I'm going to let this thing run. Let the weeds and the tares grow together. But there's a harvest coming, and there's a message that prepares people just as the sun and the watering and our tender care prepares our plants. Let us enter into that experience, and let us have the rest that God wants us to have. That's my call. That's my purpose for being a part of this organization, and that's my wish for each one of you tonight to find the rest that only God can provide, and that you would say, the Lord will provide. Dear Father in heaven, we've had a blessed event. You're so good to us, Lord. You've taken on so much responsibility as a good caretaker of your field. You said, what more can I do for my vineyard? Because you've done so much. Lord, we pray that we would have a correct vision of you. We would pray that in every experience of our lives, whether that's agriculture or whether that's some other occupation or whether that's going to school, that these principles, Lord, transmit to all of our life. It's not just about farming, but Lord, we pray that many people here would be compelled to enter into the garden, that they might know you, that may find you a, a person that is trustworthy, and that they might enter into the rest that you provide that only you can. To this end we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.